People need to understand that it is not your fault that you carry these burdens, but it is your responsibility to identify and work with them and release them. It's not about blaming, it's about responsibility and just owning. Leadership and discomfort go hand in hand. How you navigate the discomfort of leading depends on the burdens you are carrying. Now, you know these burdens well, shame, humiliation, rejection, just to name a few. So much personal and professional development out there teaches us to figure out the problem and then quickly move on. But true resilience and growth requires more than just the decision to quote, let it go. No matter what mindset hacks you use, the echoes from painful experiences often continue to linger and impact how you lead, connect, and tolerate risk. Sometimes you are so used to the weight of all you're carrying, it is hard to see how these burdens hinder the vulnerability needed to deepen relationships. The burdens we carry shut down our capacity to connect and truly be seen. And our burdens hinder our ability to do the healing needed to have the capacity to engage in sustaining social justice work. Leading well requires tolerating the discomfort of being seen, not just at your filtered best, but really being seen in your strengths. And also when you make bad decisions and navigate the fallout from those bad decisions, respond defensively to criticism and struggle with your confidence. What gets in the way of your capacity to be seen is directly connected to how much your nervous system trusts you to feel discomfort. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Leadership and discomfort are inextricably connected. The burdens we carry impact our ability to stay curious when the discomfort of fears and vulnerabilities surface. (laughs) And some days it feels like we're constantly getting pummeled by fears and vulnerabilities. It can truly be exhausting. And trying to separate from our discomfort is where we often get ourselves into trouble. Bypassing or shutting down discomfort leads to numbing and disconnecting instead of feeling through the hard things. And instead of choosing numbing and disconnecting, it's important, actually essential. We get to know the burdens we carry and learn how to heal them so we can lead ourselves and others with more presence and generosity. Now for me, relationships are the space where I find the edges of lingering burdens. (laughs) They move me to check in with myself and my story. So when I feel defensive, I check in. When I feel afraid of speaking up and being misunderstood, I pause and check in. And when I feel angry and judgy, I check in. And the burdens we carry are often connected to our reoccurring struggles too. So safe, trusted relationships that can hold up a mirror to my growth edges are so rich and valuable to me. And when I stay in my bubble of comfort, I don't check in and connect with what is fueling my discomfort. So this is when I lead from a place connected to the burdens I carry. Thankfully, my friendships challenge me to be a better human and keep me paying attention to what needs tending and healing. Now on today's show, it is an honor to give you a window into the friendship I've developed with two colleagues of mine, Natalie Gutierrez and Kim Paulus. 
These friendships have become so valuable to me because finding strong female friends who lift you up instead of critique or compete is rare. And it's always energizing for me to find friendships with folks like Natalie and Kim who have different lived experiences and have different worldviews than mine. Their differences make me sharpen and grow while we connect in our passion for IFS, trauma, pop culture, and good food. Natalie Gutierrez is a Puerto Rican LMFT who grew up in the native Lenape land, now known as New York City. Much of her work is dedicated to providing trauma-informed psychotherapy to Black, Indigenous, and people of color and mixed race. She supports her clients healing legacy burdens and ancestral trauma and the impact of colonial trauma. (laughs) Natalie is a budding author. She's got a book coming out, so make sure you follow her so you know when it drops. It's going to be so important. She is a proud mother of two and a growing equestrian. Kim Paulus is a biracial queer psychotherapist and an IFS clinical consultant in private practice in Oakland, California. With a background in social justice activism, she serves primarily the LGBTQIA and BIPOC communities, including multiracial people with adult children of immigrant parents. When she's not working, Kim enjoys the outdoors with her family and her sweet 75-pound lapdog cooking and eating fancy food, friend after my own heart. (laughs) Natalie and Kim helped me kick off a new series for this podcast, the Unburdened Leader Roundtable Discussions, where I have conversations with colleagues, friends, and other leaders on topics we care deeply about. Now listen as Natalie, Kim, and I share some of our struggles with making new friends, especially later in life. Notice the fears and concerns we shared around being seen and belonging. And pay attention to Natalie and Kim dropping some powerful wisdom around racism and legacy burdens. Now, please welcome Natalie Gutierrez and Kim Paulus to the Unburdened Leader podcast. You're listening to the Unburdened Leader and you are in for a treat today. We are doing a new special series called the Unburdened Leader Roundtable Sessions. And I'm so excited to kick off this new series with colleagues of mine, Natalie and Kim. Natalie and Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yes. And I... What I was so excited about this, because the three of us have had these conversations offline, online, in the chat and Zoom and different ways that we've connected. And I just feel like there's so many special things to bring out to the light that other folks would really benefit from and really relate to. And I'd like to to drop in and really start with our first roundtable topic around making friends later in life, making friends, especially female friends. It can be challenging both personally and professionally. And and I find this to be true the older I get because I'm clear on what's okay and what's not. I'm clear on what I want in community and what I'm not. For me, I I can be a little overly optimistic and be like, friends, yay. And then I'm like, oh, that wasn't mutual. (laughs) And so so for, for me, at the beginning of the year, the three of us met in a training that we were asked to trained to be assistant trainers in a community and a methodology we're passionate about called Internal Family Systems. And we're also serving at the same time on a leadership team for an IFS level one training. So we've had a lot of interactions Mm -hmm. and really gotten to know each other. It started off with me like sending little Zoom chats like, I really appreciate what you said. Love to talk more. Thank you for your leadership. These little like, you know, 
I think you're really cool. <laughs> and so it, it's really led to this cool, cool friendship that's built, but also a really cool professional relationship. You are deeply trusted colleagues, but I also really respect you as women, as leaders, as humans. And I, I'm curious for you to share, and I'll share too, but what surprised you the most about our friendship? Yeah, yeah. I thought about this and I have to say the most, the most interesting thing for me is I've realized that I'm in this little Bay, you know, I'm in Oakland, California. I'm in this very Bay Area bubble that's full of queers and progressives and people who share the same politics as me and people who share the same identities as me. And, you know, it's been really comfortable and my and the people that I work with are the same. And so, you know, the thing that has been the, the most surprising to me is that I am making friends with straight people in ways that I have not in a really long time. Yeah, it's been really comfortable in my little bubble and it's been easy to do that here in ways that like it's not as easy to do. I think if I was living when I have been living in other parts of the country, you know, so there's a little echo chamber of people who think like me and look like me and love like me. But I realize that what has been missing in there and I have some of this. I have I have really amazing community of therapists and therapists of color out here and queer therapists of color. Like there's so many of us here and that's been amazing, but it's been, I haven't had the same connection with therapists who use the same model, who think about things in the same way that I do in this way, who think about not just about our clients in the same way, but about how we hold ourselves and how we hold the world. So it's been this extra layer of getting to connect with people who, you know, see the world in this parts framework in the same way, in similar ways that I do, and that allow for a complexity that has felt welcoming to the parts of me that have wondered, are people going to get me as a queer person? Are people going to get me as a, you know, as a really radically progressive person, anti-capitalist, all this stuff, where in ways that I had not felt seen in this community before. And so the relationships that I'm forming with you two and with other folks in the group, it's like, oh, there are others of us out here and there are others who are in this world there might be room for me here in ways that I haven't felt mm -hmm. in a while. Thanks yeah. for that, Kim. Yeah. How about you, Natalie? So I remember the first day that we all met together, I felt like everyone already kind of knew each other. And I was the newbie in the group because I'm fairly new to the model and to the you know training. And I remember just feeling a little bit nervous to connect because for me, when we talk about meeting people later, meeting friends, making friendships later on in life, I am a bit more guarded when it comes to making friends. Mm -hmm. I'm so picky when it comes to friends, all because of, you know, all the hurt and pain that I've experienced in my friendships in the, in the past. So, mm -hmm. you know, coming into the group and knowing, at least carrying the narrative that you know, I've heard about me in the past, which is like Kim was sharing, right? This radical person that is, you know, bringing up race in our trainings and, you know, just talking about everything that I believe in has really felt lonely sometimes. Yeah. And, and I want to say has made people either really intimidated with me or just don't want to you know be my friend right they don't want to befriend me and so we kind of just have like a very cordial 
relationship. And so that's kind of what I've been used to. And it kind of works for me because, because, and I was sharing with you, Rebecca, I'm, I'm an introvert. So like my conversations, I don't like fluff surface conversations. Like I like to go deep in conversations. And so, so people tend to, once we start talking about race and stuff, people like, Oh yeah, you know, I, I don't see color. Right. And, and then that, that pretty much ends the friendship <laughs> if they're unwilling to sit with their own parts and you know gauge in that uh conversation deeper with me it's it's really hard to keep friendships that way so i'm kind of you know i always go into this into trainings like this and i'm like who's really gonna stick around who really is going to be there be my friend understand and that's kind of how i arrived into the training and i was not expecting at all the closeness that I'm building with the two of you and the others in the group was not expecting that. I really appreciate how it was actually both of you, Rebecca and Kim, how y'all DM'd me. And I can't remember what you what you said, but I do remember how it made me feel. And it made me feel like, oh, like they're not afraid of me. They want to get to know me. I think Kim, I think you had maybe even know we were gonna PA together at this point. I can't remember, but like yeah. It was just really offering encouragement and support. And that felt really good to my parts. And then us just texting back and forth has been really wonderful. Rebecca, I think you're my first white friend. Wow. <laughs> I think so. I think so. That like, you know, there's, they're like friendships that for me, I have tears, right? They're like me too. The people me in my too. inner circle or the people that like, I really can trust and then you know the further you out the, yeah. the the less but yeah like it like rebecca i think you're like my first friend's friends so i just want to say like that's a big deal that's such a big deal for me because no pressure really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've got i've got parts now like don't be that white friend. Don't go there. Don't do it. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to probably do it. But you know, we've got a friendship. So go ahead. Sorry. Right. No. And I, I was just going to say, and it's not, listen, like none of us are perfect. I'm not perfect. Right. But it's just appreciating that. And nor do we always have to agree on everything. Mm -hmm. Right. I just want to share that too. But there's something about like just the willingness to have hard conversations and be close and feel like I actually belong that I'm very, mm -hmm. I'm very, I tend to be very sensitive to that and I'll know when I belong and I know when I don't. So Ooh. that, I mean, that's all about legacy burdens. Right. And like both of you have just been so amazing to me and so dear to my heart. You know, it's interesting hearing you talk about when you show up being true or staying in your bubble. Right. And so when I showed up at this training, I knew nobody like, which is rare for me, but it's an extrovert's dream. But when I started listening to different people speak in this group, I thought, Oh my gosh, I, there was, there was a feeling I told my husband, I said, I feel like I've come home. And with people that have had very different lived experiences than me, but what it was is, that this, this, obviously this model, like this worldview on healing and change, but folks leaning into their power and their strength and their confidence and courage 
and doing the work to do so, but do so with love. I remember you said that once, Natalie, you and I were talking once and I asked you about something. You said, I try to speak whatever I do with love. And I said, that's it. That's what I feel from you. That's that's what I feel from you. You say something, I'm like, I feel like an, oh shit, that's so true. And I feel conviction, but I don't feel shamed. And, and not even feel, it's more that I feel like I still belong. It's not even that you didn't mm-hmm. trigger me. I could still be activated as like crazy, but I still feel like I belong. I just felt parts of me just saying, listen, just take this mm-hmm. in. And the two of you and some other folks, especially in this in, in this cohort we're in, it just felt like I belonged, but it was beyond how we show up in the world. There was something like soul <laughs> sacred. Mm. There was something very sacred about it. And I, I still probably don't have the words for it, um, but I, I am a better person because I know you all and the others in this cohort. There's something anchoring about that. And there, there isn't the competition, the scarcity and who's uh-huh. doing what. And, you know, Natalie, you're writing a book, Kim, like you have a thriving practice and you are a legend status trainer. You, I mean, the gifts you have blow my mind on how you facilitate and lead and can connect with anybody and I have the hard conversations and you rumble with it. That's just not something I have seen as people saying, let's get messy and scrappy and then still like break bread. I haven't seen that since I worked in DC where I saw senators compete like that too, but go ahead. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I just, you know, I've talked to you about this before. I just feel like this is the way this works is we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to do everything right all the time. We're not going to never going to be able, never be hurt in doing this work together. And Mm. we have Mm. to be able to do this work together in connection and acknowledge the hurts and acknowledge the mistakes and speak for all of the stuff that comes up with that. And then see if there's a way to stay in our hearts and stay connected when, when we do this work, that's what we're all in the same fight. Like we're, we do this work as allies to the fight, not just as allies to each other. And I but wanna... how do you remember that? How do you remember that? Like, it's like, I get that in theory and mm-hmm. I believe that, but I feel like so many people forget that we're in it together. How do you, how do you remember to stay in it, Kim? You know, and I, I really want to thank Fatima for those words. You know, she, she really brought that in, in that workshop and that microaggressions workshop of just when we are doing this work in this fight, when we are, you know, speaking up and saying the thing that is true and saying the thing that is hard, we are doing it not just in allyship of the person of people who are being harmed or not just in allyship or defending the people who are doing the harm. We're doing it in allyship to the change that we are all fighting for. And that's so big how, picture. Big, I, it's big picture. It's big picture. And I think one of the things that IFS has given me is this real ability or it, let me say this. It has empowered the parts of me that are really good at being with complexity and being with the both and you know i have parts that it's nuance it's nuance we can feel this way we can we can have a part that gets scared and says this thing in this way and then we can sit back and realize okay yeah that's a part of me that feels that way but in my heart i know that this is true and if i come back to what's in my heart, you know, I got to be accountable for the stuff that that part said. 
but I can have compassion for it and know how to take care of it going forward. So you have a practice, IFS has given you a practice to stay engaged. It has, it's given me a practice to stay engaged and to, to be okay with complexity. Someone may say the thing that they don't know better yet, and I can look at them and still see the self that's in them as well. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, and I feel like I got that, a lot of that from you, Natalie, also just in the way that you, you do, you speak the truth in a way that is so loving. I've said this to you, like I've, I've read emails yeah. that you've sent. I have listened to things that you have said, and it's so loving. It just, I feel it deep in my heart when you say it, even when you're saying the thing that people need to hear that do, they don't necessarily and- want to hear. Loving in the sense that it is freaking powerful. Yeah. Like, like nice. I, ca- I say nice is, is appeasing and complicit. Kind is loving and generous. Yeah. And that means there's room for scrappy. And I, I think that's the thing for me is you, you both are so, such powerful women, but there isn't a sense of like the pie is only small and, and someone else comes in and, oh no, there's a threat. I've yeah. not sensed that from you and other leaders yeah. in this cohort. And that's new to me and I just turned 50. That's really new. I've not felt like, let's grab another chair. Let's do this. And I really appreciate that so much. Uh, And I just have to say, I feel that I can speak up more because I know that there are people like you both cheering me there. It's harder to do it and I'll still do it, but I'm shaking. <laughs> like I'm shaking in my boots. Speak it up because it's because there's something about you know that there are people that are that have your back, that are encouraging you, and are listening. Because it's hard to also speak when folks are dismissing or not listening. And I feel mm-hmm. like so much. I feel like especially in in um you know, for black indigenous POCs, like that is the experience that happens a lot of the time is there's a lot of speaking and not enough listening. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that has just been just having you both there, I just have to say is helpful just having people there. This is where community comes in and it's just so important. It's everything. Because it, yeah, it is. And, and when you're talking about the scarcity kind of piece, I feel like I was Mm -hmm. that person. Like back in the day, I was that person. I was that person that was like, I don't know if I can curse here, but sugar honey, sugar honey, I see. (laughs) 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 I'm like, I think we already stepped over that line. (laughs) Okay, great. And so it's in the past, I've been the person that has been like, oh my God, there's not enough for both of us. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. now there's like a, oh my God, if this person is being heard more or seen more or whatever, getting more, whatever accolades, then I'm like, <gasps> there's something wrong. You know, there's something wrong. Like I'm not good enough. Again, all from those cultural legacy burdens that have turned into those legacy burdens. And so like, I have had to do a lot of work around releasing the burden of scarcity that there is not enough and i've had to say no 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 white supremacy wants you to believe that hello wants you to believe that there is not going to be enough and so some bodies are going to be you know receive less right there's not enough and i don't want to buy that i don't want to buy into that anymore and i especially 
don't want to buy into that with anyone, actually with anyone. But it also seems like it hurts more when it's coming from folks in your community and where you're kind of turning on each other because that is exactly what oppressive systems want. (laughs) So like, so I have done a lot of work around that. And now I can just say there are going to be times that I'm just going to listen and there are going to be times where I'm going to speak. And all of that is wonderful. Like I'm enough. That person is enough. And in fact, we need to do this together to be that. I feel like strength doesn't even cut it, but like be that movement that we have so needed. The word the word power keeps coming up to me. Yeah. Um, and it's powerful to stay grounded in my humanity and your humanity, even when we're missing each other. And it's work and it's work. And it's harder to do that when we're still carrying the burdens of our own personal traumas, cultural traumas. I know for me, I breathed in, I've been, you know, by the gallons, I've been drinking misogyny and toxic masculinity and, you know, was raised up on patriarchy. I've had so many mixed messages around what it means to be strong and powerful. So thank you for for naming that because I think it is the work. It's about something bigger, even in my, even the spaces that are my little bubbles and echo chambers. I know you addressed this, this already, but what are some, what are some of the fears and concerns that showed up as we started to kind of you know, move from, oh, we're in this group together to getting a little more personal. And and how have you addressed them? I mean, Rebecca, I really appreciated what you said earlier about, I don't even know if we're recording at this point, but when you were like, you know, I have parts that like, ooh, friends, and like get really excited. And then, and then you're like, well, I got to slow my roll. Because, you know, I will say like, I watched you do that process, even with me. And, you know, and I noticed in what was happening in myself, like that, like that come on strong in the beginning, like I have parts that you know, from my own legacy burdens, assume that I'm not going to belong, you know, just come, even coming back to that belonging piece, I have parts that assume I'm not going to belong and that assume that people are just being nice to me just to be nice and they don't really mean it. Mm. And wow. so, yeah. And so I like, I felt myself have that reaction and knew that was my shit. And I'm like, you know, working on it. And, you know, and just like decided I was just going to stay. And then I watched you kind of like reel yourself back and I appreciated it. I was like, okay, she sees, she sees what she's doing. And, and, you know, and it wasn't harmful anyway, but it was just like, oh, you're attuned. That, that is part of what helped me to know that, that you are more trustworthy is that I saw you being attuned to what was happening between us. And I saw you being attuned to what was happening in yourself and like not get defensive and just like you took care of yourself. And that mm. helped me to feel like I could step forward with you also. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an 80s captain of the chilling squad. Mm-hmm. I've got parts that still like, let's go team. <laughs> and I've got people, I see people, when I see people's eyes, there's like certain physical tells or energy. I'm like, oh, okay. She needs to relax a little bit. <laughs> you know, and I'm also she, super she introverted. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I have so many introverted people in my life. <laughs> Did, I have to hear that again. Can you, Kim? You said you're secretly introverted. No, I said I'm <laughs> super introverted. I don't. I don't know oh. the secrets for <laughs> But I mean, you know, I also I do love like interact like this kind of small group interaction. I thrive on it and thrive on that con- kind of connection. But big groups, I find the small pockets in big groups. Yeah, same. Mm-hmm. How about you? How about you, Natalie? Any what fears and concerns came up as you got to know us? And how have you addressed them? 
Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's always they're going to see me. The fear oh. of being seen, that shit is scary. Like I, I, I'm just a master at guarding myself. I'm mm. so good at it. I'm so good at it. I've had several decades <laughs> of practice. <laughs> so the idea of opening myself up to someone is very scary. And I do that with a handful of people because again, like when I'm close to somebody, I'm close to them. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I, I give off, I, I can give off an energy of like, stay away. I can give off an energy of, you know, slow down. I'm really good about putting and, and giving people, putting them into my tears that are protective of me. So like, for me, I think I have wonderful parts that are just able to just pick up on folks' energy. And that allows me to, I guess, give permission to the parts that are very protective of me and protective of my own sacred energy, lets people in. And so my thing is always in meeting someone is, how far is this going to go? How far is this friendship going to go? Like, you know, I, you're going to, this is the the self-talk like you're gonna need to allow people in you're gonna need to allow people to see you because i'm just so terrified of being seen i've all my life i've been the person that you know is always in the background so being in the spotlight is very hard even though i find myself there a lot it's very hard for me to be there so i think it's just always for me like letting people in but i just feel like, I mean, I just have so much, so many of my parts have given space to let you in because of the energy that you and the support and the love that you have given me. So it feels like my parts are like, okay, we want to, we want more closeness with them. We want, we want to let them in. And I think I'm also getting to the point where I want to let more people in, but I want to let the right people in. I don't want to let people that I don't know how to say, but like that are just perpetuating more of what has harmed me without the mm-hmm. consciousness of wanting to change it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Trust for me, but even as someone who's a raging extrovert, my trust doesn't go deep uh-huh. quickly. Mm-hmm. My excitement goes deep, my enthusiasm. And I can go deep with conversations. I think it's an occupational hazard, even with someone I don't know, but it doesn't feel like I'm revealing a lot just because of, again, what we do. Uh-huh. But trust trust has been because of the just so many betrayals in my story. And then me not trusting myself and continue to let people in who are kind of repeating <laughs> the same stuff, right? I mean, systems theory 101. Um, <laughs> and, and so... It was hard for me to trust is, I mean, is this, is this as good as it, as it looks like? And, and yeah. what, what do I do? It was an interesting trailhead for me to just trust the excitement that was something that felt de- deeper. Sometimes my excitement feels like I just had a green tea, but this <laughs> felt different. And then that actually was the bigger, that was scarier for me because oh. I don't have a lot of people. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm very private. I'm very open and very relational. 
but there's, there's a line and it's there. And there's some things that are very private for me. And I found myself even in our, just sharing some stuff, whether it's about my family or my marriage or something I, my experience in some situations we've been in that I normally wouldn't because I'd be like, Oh, don't, don't be Uh. seen. Like you said, Natalie, and not once have I had any backlash part. My system didn't backlash. It was, there might've been like curiosities on, Oh, how did that land for you? And then it was like, I'm going to trust them that if there's something I said or did that needs follow up, they're going to let me know. And so because showing up without editing, without filtering is not, I'm trying to have spaces where that is the norm, but it still feels very vulnerable. And, and so it's, I can share space with people, but to really be seen, that's not gone well. When I, you know, on the whole, probably more fails than the successes and the successes are the best ever and the best friends and my husband and my kids and all of some rich people, uh, rich relationships. So I, I appreciate that. But trust is I can give away connection, but not my trust. Mm-hmm. Oh, I really appreciate that distinction. Yeah. And so the U-turns, I was a little whiplashy for the first few months, like, but it was so great to have this methodology, this practice of I'm with you, you know, but my system was so hungry for some deeper connection that they were like, okay, we know we're not alone, but it'd be cool to have some more people. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else about no, that resonated when you said my system is hungry because that's how it feels. Like yeah. my system is hungry. My system is hungry. Yep. And I'm willing to take the risk. And I'm just thinking of the quote. Oh gosh, I don't remember who said it, but it's one of my favorites. And it talks about like, gosh, the essentially now I can't even remember it. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite, but but I always picture it. But it's basically about the bird flying around and how, you know, when it lands on the branch, it's not really scared about the branch breaking because it believes in its ability to fly. Uh, it believes in its capability to remove itself. And that really, that quote, um, I guess folks can Google it. I can't remember who said it, <laughs> but, but we'll find it. it's just so meaningful to me because it's a reminder of like, you know, like, the risk is important. Taking that risk is important because I know that I can keep myself safe. I know that I can remove mm-hmm. myself from something that doesn't feel good anymore. And I believe in me. Mm-hmm. And so just yes. opening myself up and just trusting and landing where I land and believing that it's going to be all right. And if it's not that I can remove myself is such an empowering feeling. And that my worthiness wasn't on the table, whether right. I had BFFs out of this situation. Yes. I was worthy. I was safe. I had it. And there were parts of me that were like, had no idea what to expect. And then I went, oh, there's a lot of connection possibility here. And, and to to navigate that and pace it, sometimes not so eloquently, right, Kim? I was like, <laughs> Kim! <laughs> But those are just those and those parts are lonely. Those parts oh, are yeah. lonely and not many people 
see that. They maybe see like maybe excited, nervous, anxious, selly, spinny, conformy parts mm-hmm. that try to fit in. But those ones that are just super stoked and enthusiastic, they don't they don't get a lot of light and they're getting more these days. So I, I, you know, for me, it was even if it is short lived or there's a part of me is like, yeah, it will fade off into the night, you know, but there's other parts for me. I'm a very loyal person. Like once someone makes that inner circle, it's like, I got you, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, I got you. And, and it takes it, 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 it's like, I'm on your team. And, and even if there's, there's waves on that, I'm like, I'm on their team. I'm not just going to get bounced off because of, you know, whatever shakes it up. And so it takes a lot to get there. And I haven't felt that reciprocated a lot in my life, but that's always mm-hmm. been something that's been a value that I've given, but it's hard. It's it, trusting is, is at the foundation of connection. You mm-hmm. can't have connection without trust as Brene talks about. It's built in these small moments, uh, Brene Brown. And, and, and she describes connections being seen, heard and, and valued and, and in those little small moments. And it really played itself out for me. And then being in a room of powerful women that are cheering each other on. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's where still, I'm still trying to trust it. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's really healing the scarcity wound for me, I think. Just this sense of wow. all of us in this room together, cheering each other on, not competing, really wanting wow. everyone to be lifted up. It, it is. It's bringing that feeling of like, okay, there is enough. There is enough for us. And, you know, the more we are together, the more, the more that's available, like the more it builds the energy. And so there's even more available for everybody. It fills itself. Yeah. Yeah. There's billions of dollars made on perpetuating the scarcity burden. That's right. Billions. Yeah. yeah. That's a frustrating aspect of our culture. And it really does permeate at the core relationships and how we see ourselves and others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's go there. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about the cultural burdens of race. Mm-hmm. I found out today, Natalie, I'm your, I'm your first white friend. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you really are. I'm, and, not, I'm not playing. <laughs> so, okay, before I, I go, how about I, I want to tee this up. So for those listening in our ATP, we, and I would say we is really more Natalie, you and Kim and some other folks that are powerful leaders in the BIPOC community kind of shook things up and said, we're not just going to do business as usual. And that was received by leadership. There was like, had to be a container of trust built before we could just go, this is what it means to be an AT and go through all the things. There was a lot of discussions to be had. Hey there, I want to pop in here briefly and explain some language you'll be hearing from Kim, Natalie, and myself in this segment of our round table discussion. At the time of this recording, the three of us are in a couple of internal family systems trainings which we often refer to as IFS. Now, if you're new to the podcast, Internal Family Systems is founded by Dr. Richard Schwartz, who I interviewed on episode two of this podcast, is a methodology for healing, change, and leading ourselves and others. In fact, it's become a movement that is committed to helping people find more harmony within themselves which in turn impacts the larger systems with which we live and work for the greater good. Now, one of these IFS trainings, Kim, Natalie, and I refer to a lot is a pilot IFS advanced training program, or what you will hear we refer to as ATP. 
And this was a training where we were invited to participate in a year-long program to become assistant trainers, or what we call ATs. I know, that is a lot of acronyms. Now, the three of us are also serving on a leadership team in an IFS level one training. During this time, we have built a deeper friendship and also reckoned with a lot of pushback from the burdens we all carry from the system of white supremacy. Speaking up, holding space, figuring out if, when to take up space and share, we get into the nuances of all of this inspired from these training experiences together and our connections with each other. Okay, now back to the Unburdened Leader Roundtable Conversation. It was a fascinating and important conversation watching how everyone was navigating this. And so we've talked about the collective burdens of racism has left no one unscathed, whether they've acknowledged it or not, it's left no one unscathed. So I want to read you something uh, that was shared to us in one of our trainings. That's from Dick Schwartz. He's the founder of Internal Family Systems. And he, he shared this at this year's Heirloom Summit. And I want to get your reactions to it. Okay. So Dick said, anti-racism education can help us break through the denial, access our self-compassion and courage, and lead us to more action. But we also need to form new relationships with all the parts of us that carry different aspects of the legacy burden of racism. So how can IFS help with all this? First, it can get to the primal level. It can heal the sacred parts and unburden the legacy burdens that are embedded deep within us. It also provides a different, non-polarizing way of working with the protectors of those exiles, the denial, passivity, distracting, and numbing parts. And then Dick is speaking, Dick's white. This resonated with me and a lot of people I'm in community with. And helping them relax and trust self-leadership. Second, it provides a less shaming language and framework for working with these issues. Isabel Wilkerson recommends that we, quote, release ourselves of the purity test of whether someone is or is not racist and exchange that mindset for the one that sees people as existing on a scale based on the toxins they have absorbed from the polluted and inescapable air of social instruction we have received from childhood. Mm. And and Isabel wrote uh, the book Cast, which is powerful. Mm. So Richard wraps up saying, IFS is such a mindset. People absorb different degrees of the legacy burden of racism and its accompanying denial, numbing, shame, and fear. Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> if I could speak for the parts that came up for me as you were reading, which kind of, there was one thing around the content about it that's, you know, amazing. Um, and just has me, I mean, I've kind of shared this with some folks around like, how IFS even needs to be taught using this Mm. lens. I guess the first thing I want to say is just communicating, if we're being real, right? (laughs) That I think it's just, and this is true for for all therapy modalities, that it's just all been very white for a really long time. And I think the hurt that I carry is that there's been a lot of movement now with IFS and, you know, getting BIPOC into the space of leadership and everything. And it, I guess the hurt, I have a, a part that carries hurt of like, why does it take so much suffering of BIPOC for you to now start to, you know, bring us into this space? Like, did no one at any point... Uh-huh 
look at your website, you know, like the IFS website, website or any, or any, like this is for everyone. This is for all therapy modalities and say, wow, there's something that is a lot of the same here. Mm-hmm. And what is wrong here? And who are we forgetting? And who are we leaving behind? And who are we not representing? And I, I don't know what that part needs for the hurt to be released, but it's just something that's there. And it's just something that I just feel like always needs to be said of like, what happened and how did this take so long? And why was this okay for so long? So just naming that, right? Because it, for me, at least my experience is like, a lot of this has been put into gear now after George Floyd's murder and, um, and Breonna Taylor. And it just feels like this. And, and yeah. Right. So that's, that's what comes up for me. And that, you know, I know things have been taught a certain way for a long time. And I think that for me, I believe what needs to happen is that we are, when we're talking about parts, because this is the very model that we can do this, that instead of us saying, you know, I'm not racist or I'm not this, that we actually own that if we have grown up, which many of us, all of us have, uh-huh. in you know, in in oppressive systems and systems that perpetuate heteronormativity, that perpetuate racism and classism and ableism and all of it, that we that it's important that we recognize the parts of us that we're trying to shield ourselves from, right? That we're trying mm-hmm. to exile, that carry implicit bias, that carry these things that we've learned about other people based on what has been taught to us by our family that has been taught to them by the system that we've all grown up in because historical trauma informs legacy burdens, informs everything that we learn Mm -hmm. about the world Mm -hmm. and about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So like, I think we need to be incorporating this in the IFS trainings. It's not a matter of if for me, it's a matter of like, we need to do it. We need to talk about power and privilege. We need to talk about how we all carry these parts and that and it looks it looks it can it can be even so subtle right like if you're talking and you already and someone says oh my part my partner and you you assume that the per that they're in a heterosexual relationship right mm-hmm. or even a monogamous relationship or that mm-hmm. that there are assumptions that we're already made because we've been conditioned to do this and so if we can just really be if we can really just name that as opposed to carrying shame around it and like really i want to say like inco- merging it with shame if we can kind of just uncouple unlink yeah. them and just recognize like and normalize this is what this is this is what i've been taught yeah naturally i'm going to feel this and like this is now the work that i need to do right and that's true for all of us all of us and i think it you know, what came up for me as you were saying that is this sense of like, people need to understand that it is not your fault that you carry these burdens, but it is your responsibility to identify and work with them and release them. It's not about blaming. It's about responsibility and just owning. Kim, you said it's not a blame thing. It's a responsibility thing, but man, that's probably the number one thing that comes up with those that I work with. If if they feel blamed, they feel like they're responsible for everything. And then how they respond sometimes leads to, we need to unpack that even more. And, and there's the othering. But for me, really, this this training, we're still in the throes of COVID. So we're in a hard stop. 
but the efficiency of, oh, this is wrong, but we just got to clap, 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 let's get it right. But we need more space. And I'm like, that's the work. And, and, but it, it goes against everything I've been trained. Mm-hmm. This is how it's always been done. Okay. We don't have time. We don't have money. We don't have resources for that. Yeah, you do. We just have to be creative. And I'm recognizing that that's still not the norm in a lot of spaces that I'm in or where a lot of leaders that I work with are in spaces where they are waking up that we need more time and space and they're like efficiency perfectionism are still worshiped and and it's there's so much nuance in that so i I appreciate you bringing that up noting that it's not about blame but it's about our responsibility to do the work because if we can hold the space for more of the messiness Uh i'm okay i'm safe but it doesn't that's the part where it feels ridiculously and painfully slow mm-hmm. because like, like you said, harm is being done mm-hmm. now, how we're training, how we're leading. And you said therapy theories, I'm saying any kind of professional or personal development, all of it mm-hmm. is there. It's not just clinical theories. Yeah. I mean, I really hold both of that too. You know, as you both know, like I definitely have parts that feel urgency of things need to be attended to right now and parts that are upset when people are harmed And then, you know, balancing that with this, like change is slow and change happens through relationship and relationships take time. You know, we're like dropped into these Zoom rooms with people and then expected. And there's something about the model that is beautiful and gives us this framework to be able to be vulnerable with each other. But we're dropped into these rooms and then we're expected to be vulnerable with each other right away. And it's, Mm. it doesn't, it's, it's not natural, whatever that means, right? Relationships take time and change happens through relationship, but I do, I have parts of like, but what about people are being harmed all the time? I am being harmed, but we are, we are being harmed. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, but I I think there's an important distinction Mm -hmm. to, we are doing something with, whether it's a training, you know, how a methodology or how we show up, how we create space that's harming people now that we need to change now versus I got to get my DEI statement up on my website. Yeah. I mean, that's so I think I want to I want to separate those two Uh because I think that's what I was saying. We can't sit there and have more conversations. We need to take action and test things now on how we do our meetings, how we do our trainings, how we do therapy, how we do how we lead, how we do family, you name it. So there's an urgency there. Uh And I think because there's bleeding happening in front of us. But the urgency, sometimes that energy went to how do I look okay? Yeah. That, so, and I wanted just to speak to that difference. Yeah. And, I, and, and, you know, as you're saying that, Rebecca, I'm also thinking like, you know, it's so easy to tokenize BIPOC. It's so easy to say, oh, oh, we have them here. Look, <laughs> you know, they're here. But oh. it's, it's the, it's, it's what changes, like what, what, like fundamental foundational changes are you making? Because there is, no way that you're going to be able to have us in the space as participants and in leadership and think you're just going to go by the same manual that you've gone through your whole life. Things need to be incorporated that um, are really sensitive and understanding of other communities marginalized bodies like we need to we need to emphasize more legacy burdens and cultural legacy burdens in the level one trainings Uh we can't skip that 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 you know that 
that should never be an option. Um, <laughs> that that we're really talking about it and also being clear within ourselves so that we can, Kim, you're the one who said this in one of the, the PA gigs that we're in. When you said, <laughs> when you said essentially that we have to kind of see our own cultural legacy burdens or our legacy burdens so that we can help others work through them. Yeah. You know, to work through their own. And that is, that is so on point because I mean, that that's just, such an important part of this and like how are we going to if we're going to make real change we really need to make real change mm -hmm. including how we're teaching the model yeah yeah so i'm even thinking from pulling up a little bit to even a trauma-informed leadership lens if a leader is going to hold space for all of this like we're going to go back to you know that, that we're hearing dismantling and deconstructing and we're seeing that the homeostasis right status quo push back mm -hmm. with a vengeance and so if for a leader to go okay i need to do my own trauma work and release the burdens my system's holding so i can then hold space for the vulnerability that other people are feeling as i lead them to do things differently and that's very nuanced work but it's not just a checklist of what do we need to, who do we need to, have? we need a systematic way of doing that. But I'm thinking of people listening to this right now going, okay, <laughs> how do I know I have these burdens? And to me, it's like, well, if you are alive now, you do. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if you could talk to on a higher level around the, these cultural, like just thinking about just cultural change. It does start, like you said, Kim, with relationship mm -hmm. and it's slow. But there's pe people bleeding right now. How, how do <laughs> how do we change the world right now? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> so easy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> how do we fix it all? <laughs> well, I, I'm just wondering for folks that are still maybe at different places of rumbling with this yeah. and care to not to not be an asshole anymore to themselves or to others. And they don't want to do harm and they want to run businesses and be a citizen in this community. And they've got a lot of stuff internally and a lot of different messages around them and their livelihood is tied up and how do they want, you know, there's a lot of things. What do you say to that? I think where I start with is this sense of being curious. Like, can you be uh, curious? I want to ask people to be curious about hmm. what is happening around them. And to look around them and see who's around them and start to think about why that might be, if it's homogenous around them. Why why might that be? And I want I do want folks, you know, one of the things that I appreciate what Dick said in that quote was that, yes, was that he even started with like anti-racist education is necessary, but it is necessary. I mean, there's there is the internal work to be done. But I think that what can start to lead you to the internal work, if it's not work that you've done before, is to start to seek out educating yourself about race and about the history of race, about the racial dynamics as they operate in this country now. And so that means seeking out media by people of color, you know, reading books, watching movies by people of color, watching documentaries that are made by people of color, listen to the stories of people of color told by people of color. And, and pay attention to what happens inside of you as you are watching this stuff. There's so much out there right now. There's amazing work being put out by incredible thought leaders, scholars, witches, like amazing people who are out there. And just start to read it and just start to be curious about the reactions that you have 
and then follow those reactions and see where it goes and then stay curious and compassionate about that. Like challenge yourself and notice what happens when you do. So going back to the model, because cur- curiosity yeah. and it takes courage to look at that as part of self-leadership. Mm-hmm. Oh. And you are going to get overwhelmed. It is overwhelming when you really start to look at the scope of the impact of white supremacy that has impacted all of us, including white people, that harms all of us, including white people. It is fucking overwhelming. And so you do it in chunks that you that your system can handle. Right. But... Hmm. you get down with being uncomfortable. (laughs) You like Mm -hmm. accept that like, this shit is going to make you uncomfortable and you got to figure out how to be okay with that because it makes us uncomfortable all the time and we don't have a choice. Right. I think that's the tricky part. I can tap in and out of this work. Right. Because of how I show up and, and, and that's, uh, yeah, just leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but then understanding too, just from a trauma perspective, sometimes that is going to be a dance and that's just where someone's yeah. at and that is okay. That's okay. But to stay curious, to stay curious and have the courage and to know the discomfort isn't going to take you out and to do the work so it doesn't uh-huh. um, right. is foundational. Right. Natalie. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about how I see how my experience has been when, you know, race is brought up into trainings and I see in particular, you know, white bodies getting uncomfortable. And I think at least what, what I, what my parts are picking up on is what is landing on their parts as their suffering doesn't matter. So like I've often heard in the trainings, like when we're talking about you know, inequity and black lives being murdered and are being taken at the hands of police brutality. And, and there will, there has been then, you know, people, white folks in particular that then are like, what about me? I also had trauma too, right? Like I also had trauma too. And it's like, yes, of course you've had trauma and no one is trying to minimize that trauma when we're talking about racial trauma, but that trauma and racial trauma are not the same. And oftentimes BIPOC have racial trauma and that trauma that you're also speaking of. So I think it's important in, um, alongside what Kim is saying is that folks get really curious about their own intersectional identities because there's also been folks right here, well, like I also grew up poor, right? And it's like, yes, you grew up poor and you grew up in a white body. So even when you are poor, you're in a white body mm-hmm. and you have privilege when you are in a white body and less privilege, less financial privilege because you were poor. I think it's important for folks to get really knowledgeable about their own intersectional identity so that we can see it's not it's not that, you know, oh, you have privilege and that's it. There are, there are identities that you carry that are not privileged or not as privileged. And the white body was made, was constructed to be the most privileged. So I think I think it's important for folks to, because people get really polarized around it and really then want to dismiss, really want to dismiss the other experience. And it's to say, 
no one is saying that your pain doesn't matter. I think people that's the thing. People want to know and believe that their pain matters. And no one is saying that your pain matters. But we are also saying, and that's the whole movement with the all lives matter thing, right? Oh, yeah. no, my li- all lives matter, right? Not just black lives, but black lives matter is not saying only black lives right. matter. Right. But that that is that is the identity that is being harmed the most. Yeah. When it comes to racialized identity. So I think folks really just get to need to, I think it's important that we all get really clear about our intersectional identities and where we hold power and privilege and see things through that lens. Because that, that for me, in my part, it feels less polarizing because there are, I, I'm privileged. I'm still, even as, you know, a Latina, I still have lighter skin. So I have more privilege, you know, and there's so much col- colorism in my community too, because mm-hmm. of that, right? And so much anti-blackness. So it's important for me to be clear about where I have privilege mm-hmm. because when someone else that, you know, doesn't, have privilege or I have more privilege than them and they're coming in and saying something and I'm like well what about me I have brown skin depending on what we're talking about it really isn't the same yeah so I think I think especially for white folks it's just important to really get clear about that that this whole discussion is not saying that their pain doesn't matter it just means that racial trauma is entirely different that's a whole other category Uh uh and deserves attention deserves care. It's hard when people are in their own pain and are struggling to put food on the table or to find a job or to feel valuable or to belong. And all of these things that keep us divided, like, well, why can't we just find where we have things in common and start from there? Or how about we just connect and understand someone else's lived experience mm-hmm. and start from there? Mm-hmm. And and so, the, but there's the sameness that does bypass and, and, and does kind of want to dismiss this conflict, this, as you said, Kim, that this sense of discomfort, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but it isn't about blame. And I think I want to go back to what you said. If anyone's listening to this and noticing, oh, I'm feeling like a shitty human. It, it's more of that discomfort to get curious about it. Like you so wisely points back to what, what this model does, what IFS does is, okay, what am I uncomfortable about this conversation right now? What is it bringing up? What are the fears? What are the concerns? Where is shame knocking? What are the critical voices saying? And that's the work right now. That's uh-huh. it. You are enough. You are enough. And it, it, it's again using how do you want to use your privilege as you right. wake up to that's it right. and and the nuances of it. And we could still have hard conversations with love. But and this is what I think I'm most excited about. And we can wrap on this, wrap up on this. Thank you both is these hard conversations that we've had amongst the three of us or within our cohort that we're in this training or or the uh, level one that we're a part of, these hard conversations are moving, they've been sometimes painfully hard, moving us forward as individuals, mm-hmm. as smaller groups, and as an organization. Mm-hmm. And we're in the weeds of it. And so that's the work. It's not about being perfect. Right. It's not about never being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And it's doing the work to go, what do I believe what do I need to learn more of uh-huh. and where do I need to get support? I'd love for you to share. What are your favorite books, your favorite people to follow on Insta, your favorite movies? What are you reading? Like, what, what are the things that are like, these, this is, these are my favorite, like, these are my top favorite resources or people or yeah, places to learn. Mm. You know, I want to think about it some more, but the person that comes to mind right now is a woman named Adrienne Marie Brown. 
She is a black queer woman. She's a beautiful writer and she's written a couple of great books. One of them called Emergent Strategy and one of them called Pleasure Activism, which really just looks at, you know, how we find joy while also doing the work of activism and how the act of finding joy is a radical thing that we do, particularly Mm -hmm. as people who have been marginalized. You know, and I think about that all the time is like this work, it requires, like it's, it's hard fucking work as we've been talking about. It's really uncomfortable. It's really terrible. And healing, doing the healing work that needs to happen also means, I think part of the healing is that we get to have joy while we are doing Mm -hmm. this fight. We get to have moments of play. We all deserve to have that. And I think centering joy and centering play and centering sensuality in all of its forms is a big part of of what we need to feed us in doing this work collectively and doing it together. Mm, Powerful. Yeah. Thank you. How about Natalie? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think my favorite, I'm trying to think, I'm like, who's my favorite, favorite, favorite? It has to be Sonia Renee Taylor. Yeah. Like, it's just, Hello. that is, that is like, yeah. She's like the shiznit. Like, is she is so good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. You know how she deconstructed, this is what I, I've been sharing with, with everyone that'll listen. She moved away, you know, moving away from, you know, self-respect, self-worth, um and and self-respect self-worth and self-esteem to self-love i've never heard anyone mm-hmm. really unpack that the way that she did i just also have to say i have a part that's saying don't forget to mention resma because oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's like my number is. two yeah he's my number two author of oh, my, grand- my, my grandmother's hands yeah yeah that's i mean just even somewhere. like yeah. his ig is just it will school you i'm just oh I was telling Kim, I want to take his somatic mm-hmm. abolitionism training one day. I'm going to just yeah. gonna be trainings forever. <laughs> I know, forever. I mean, you know, and that book is like some of what inspired, you know, brought these thoughts for me around like getting curious about our reactions to things. As I, as I was reading that book, there were times when it was so uncomfortable for me to read that book as a, <laughs> as a person who's biracial, who's half white. And just thinking about the the burdens of violence of that white people have experienced yeah. coming through and how that comes out against people of color. But there's moments of it that were so uncomfortable for me that I had to put it away. I noticed myself mm. like, I got to turn mm-hmm. away from this. And that is hard work to stay present with and, and stay curious about what's so uncomfortable. Yeah. And so don't do it alone. Don't do, exactly. That's the key is don't do exactly. this right don't do this alone. Whether it's therapy, whether it's a coach, whether it's colleagues, whether it's community, mem, don't do it alone. Yeah. This, this work when you have, cause I, I feel like that's for me, I think a lot of, as this is captain obvious, but even in my own healing journey, especially in this area is because of my relationships, mm-hmm. because I'm waking up more to things and myself and then deepening the humanity and of other people and other people's lived experiences. And then that changed how I make decisions and how I lead myself and others. Mm-hmm. So we, we can't, we can't do this in a vacuum. It's not just a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause this, yeah, this work happens collectively, you know, mm-hmm. it happens it best in the it collective. Does. And, you know, when we're doing this work that activates the parts of us that hold so much shame, what is healing mm-hmm. is to have those parts be able to come into the light come out of the shadow and we can just be real with what the shame is 
you know, when I say this, like it's a big deal, it's fucking uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's so much healing and bringing that to the surface and having people around you who can be like, I see this and I still love you. I see this and I feel this also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Witnessing, Witnessing. just again, going back to the IFS model. Yeah. Oh, thank you both. You both are are treasures to me. Natalie, let's start with you. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and your work? Where can they find you? I'm not big on social media. So the only social media platform that I have that's public is Instagram. And my Instagram handle is at Natalie Gutierrez LMFT. They can find me there. On my website, www.traumacounselingnyc.com. You, you put some wonderful stuff out there. Kim, how can people find you and connect with you? Yeah, I'm even less on the socials than Natalie. I just, my Instagram is all pictures of my dog and pictures of food that I made. So, <laughs> so yeah, people can go to my website, which is just kimpaulispsychotherapy.com. And my phone number and email address are on there. Awesome. And if people want to do consultations, if they're not in California or New York, but they just wanted to talk about what they heard today and just do consultations, are you both available to that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have space available for, for some consultation. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. This, you're, you both are incredible resources. And so just definitely want to promote that as an option to anyone listening too. So thank you both for your time. I'm so excited for folks to listen to us just do what we normally do. <laughs> <Excited. We're> going <laughs> deep. Going deep. Love it. Love it. I don't know how to Love do it, it otherwise. Thank you so much for showing up today. I appreciate you. Thank you, Rebecca. Appreciating you. Stepping into leadership is stepping into discomfort on repeat again and again and again. Now leading well and shoot, just being a good human requires tolerating the discomfort of being witnessed in all your humanity having trusted relationships, even a precious few, are a game changer when it comes to building more courage to be seen, not just in your successes, but when you have falls and failures. When you feel supported and also have the capacity to support the parts of you that feel vulnerable, it is easier to show up for those who need you while staying aligned with what matters most. What relationships sharpen you and bring out the best in you? What supports your capacity to build and sustain trust? And how are the burdens from your story and our culture weighing you down and impacting your capacity to tolerate discomfort? Now, I am so grateful for friends like Natalie and Kim and the other leaders in my IFS ATP cohort who have cultivated a sense of belonging and trust that feels rare and sacred. Now, I'm learning when you dare to trust and get out of your bubble, You will expand both your worldview and your heart, which in turn will also expand your capacity to lead through discomfort. Leading is hard. (laughs) Leading is also freaking uncomfortable. This discomfort is unavoidable as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Now, the inevitable discomfort can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes when the stakes seem higher, they can bring up old echoes of doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. 
Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If it touched you and inspired you, I'd be so grateful if you could share this episode with someone who you think would benefit from it and please leave a review. You can find the episode, show notes, and ways to sign up for my weekly email, free unburdened leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 